Good morning. Please rise for the reading of God's Word. We are in Matthew 17. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. This, you can keep your hands raised. Matthew 17. Chapter 14. Over here. Bibles. Matthew 17, verse 14. It says, And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word and the wonderful demonstration in your word, Lord, that uh, you are there. You don't forsake us. You are there for us in our time of need, Lord. And Lord, I, I just thank you also so much, Lord, that we don't have to go through life uh, wondering uh, what the purpose of life is, wondering why we're here, wondering what we're supposed to do, why we exist, who we're supposed to be like, Lord. We have your word. In the most specific kind of way, Lord God, you direct us, Lord. And, and I just pray now by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would lead us and direct us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, please be seated. I'm going to first ask that Greg come up. Greg, can you come up? I'm not going to give him an award, even though he deserves many awards. Uh, actually, we, we just had a team come back from Mississippi. Uh, it was our second team that went down there for the Hurricane uh, Katrina relief, and I just wanted uh, Greg to give us a report. So here's uh, Greg. Okay, hi. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So uh, we had gone down from this church. There was a group of six people, um, five guys and uh, one woman. And um, we met up with a, a guy from Calvary Chapel, Connecticut, who led the team down, and then also two people from Fitchburg. And fortunately for Misty, um, one of the other two people was a woman, so she had a companion throughout the trip, you know, uh, which was a blessing. And... Um, 
we had a great time. We, we went down, arrived on Sunday night, late Sunday night, and then, um, you know, Monday we got up and we, uh, the team leader, Al, he brought us to um, a person's house, an older woman. She's like about 70 years old. And um, we worked on her house both Monday and Tuesday. And, you know, she, she, was, she really had a great need. Um, her whole house, this is, this is, to, this is in, um, in Diamond Head, Mississippi, and this is like five miles from the coast, and there's still a lot of damage. And so her whole house had to be gutted, which is to take off the sheetrock, the insulation, and all her possessions needed to be moved to the backyard. And then there was also a lot of cleanup um, that we did around her house. And so we, th- we were there um, for basically two days doing that work. And uh, it was really amazing to, to you know, just minister to this one woman. Um, her husband had really had a breakdown after the... Um, after the whole Katrina, you know, the hurricane had hit, and he went, uh, you know, he's kind of getting some uh, mental help. But um, we had gone and were ministering to this woman, and she, we heard from the church that she had not even, um, you know, come out of her nightgown or changed her clothes in like two months. And, um, and she would even go to church in her nightgown. She was just so distressed. And we, we went, we ministered on Monday, and we came back on Tuesday, and she had changed her clothes and put on a dress and put on some makeup. And the, the thing that was um, even more amazing than that was that, you know, this woman who was depressed uh, had a neighbor, you know, just in the next yard over. He came over halfway through the day, and, um, you know, Al was ministering to him because he, Al had lost his wife a number of years ago, and this guy had lost his wife, too, about two months after um, Katrina. as She had a heart attack and died. And um, so, you know, Al ministered to her. But then Frances, this woman who is depressed, you know, just the, you know, for months beforehand, actually started sharing the love of God with this man, you know. And we, we you know, that was kind of awesome. I mean, we were just seeing um, something, you know, directly happen where this, we ministered to this woman. And the next day she had such, you know, hope and joy that she started herself sharing uh, with someone else who was needy. So that was great to see. You know, that was Monday, Tuesday. And then, um on Wednesday, we had gone to another person's home, and um, you know, we just were, we didn't meet that person, but we had uh, we met their her daughter. She was also an elderly woman, and uh, same kind of thing. A lot of I mean, you go into someone's yard, and there's just stuff from inside their house everywhere, and then lots of uh, debris from trees. Uh, the guys Ben and, and Josh were doing a lot of chainsawing and cutting down trees, and um, and then also there were a lot of trees that had fallen over. You know, you'd see like a 50-foot, like a huge 50-foot tree in someone's backyard, and you're cutting it up and, and uh, getting it out to the side of the road. Um, you know, pictures can't, and, and words probably really can't describe uh, how much devastation you see, and it's just from one house to the next, um, you know, in, in town after town after town along the coast. Um, we, we, on Friday, we, we got a chance to do a little bit of touring, and we had gone down on one area, which is called Bay St. Louis. And um, as we're driving down the road, you, you see houses that have, like, partially collapsed and, you know, cars that are uh, destroyed and then just piles of rubble, and, you know, like uh, wood and stuff. And then as you get closer, um, you, can see the, you can see the coast, you can see the ocean, and then it starts to open up where just houses are just completely flattened and there's just piles of wood. I mean, you just look, and there's just, uh, you know, you see uh, 50 houses that are just, all that's there is just a, a slab. You know, you see, like, a kitchen floor, 
and lots of people's belongings just um, scattered all over the place. And, you know, we, we had only toured just, uh, that was just one town. Um, we, also, we also went to New Orleans on uh, Friday, and we, we looked around there a bit. We drove, um, you know, through the French Quarter, which is an area that was pretty, just part of that, which was uh, pretty well intact. But then we, we drove around to some of the areas that were closer to where the levees had broken, and um, there's just, you, what you see on the houses are the water lines where the water has uh, risen up. We didn't go to the worst parts of New Orleans, but um, the parts we saw, I mean, the houses, any house that's going to be underwater, you know, six foot, seven foot underwater, is, uh, you know, it's, it's um, basically got to be destroyed and rebuilt because of the damage of the water. And they also have, they're having a lot of problems too because there are regulations where they need to be raised about nine feet. So, you know, if a person wants to keep their house, they have to raise it so it's going to be above, you know, where the floodwaters had hit. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not an easy thing for anyone to raise a house nine feet off the ground, you know, to have it put up on stilts. So um, one, thing, uh, one thing also that was really weird about going through New Orleans, <clears throat> part of it we would be driving and you just you wouldn't see anyone. It would just be empty houses um, for miles, just empty houses for miles, and, and you wouldn't see people at all. And, you know, this is a city. I mean, and we, dro- we drove through the downtown area of New Orleans, and it would just be like, you know, if any typical workday you drive through, um, you know, downtown Boston, you're going to see people all over the streets, you know, going to and fro, work and whatnot. But when we went downtown New Orleans, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see anyone. You'd see um, police officers on the corners. But other than that, um, you know, people are not allowed to go back and live in their houses, and people, they're not working. So uh, we did, we really saw a lot of, um, you know, a lot of devastation. And there was more, uh, more to see, too, that we didn't. Um, and, and lots of stories. Uh, but on Thanksgiving Day, it's really a blessing. We, we set up some tents and, and set up, uh, we had set up a number of different things to, we were just helping with a group that actually come down from Missouri. And uh, there's about 35 of them from a Baptist church. And they were serving uh, meals. They had invited basically the town of Diamond Head to come to the church and eat um, Thanksgiving dinner. And they had about 650 people show, um, sign up. I don't think that many showed up, um, but it was a good number of people that showed up, and they served a meal at 11, 12, and then 1. And um, so we did some music for them, and then uh, we also got a chance to sit and minister to these people. And um, what we found, you know, all of us in the group, what we found is as you sat and you talked with a person, you'd find out that they had, you know, um, you know, Christian or non-Christian, I mean, you'd find that a lot of people had just the kind of the, their own issues, the issues of life, the struggles that people go through. You know, you'd meet um, a lot of older people with, you know, terminal illnesses and, um, you know, difficulties, you know, people getting divorces. And, and um, you know, we, one of the person's houses we worked at, uh, her daughter had died um, just like a couple weeks before in a car accident. And you're just seeing kind of just the tragedy of life going on in, in you know, people's everyday lives. And then, uh, you know, to, to also have the experience of Katrina on top of, you know, all the other things that were going on in their lives was just, um, you know, it was devastating for them. And uh, there's just really a great, you know, people have a great, uh, a great need down there physically and spiritually and that's one thing we really noticed on Thanksgiving when we were um, sitting with the people and ministering to them. You know, we just able to pray over them and uh, share the gospel with 
uh, many of them. And uh, it's, a, it's a hard thing to see, pretty sobering. But, um, you know, in the midst of, you know, all that we saw, all that we, the different stories we heard, uh, one thing that was really just such a blessing um, was a testimony of one man who is he's a pastor at the Diamond Head Church. And he, um, he had moved to Diamond Head, uh, Mississippi, about a month and a half before Katrina had hit. And he was looking to go to school. He was out of a job at the time uh, as a pastor. And um, so he's going to school. And, you know, he just moved into his new house. And then Katrina hit, and it, it completely destroyed um, his house other than, you know, the, I mean, the foundation and the frame, uh, you know, they're, they were fine, but they had to completely gut his brand-new house. And then all the brick, uh, I don't know what the name of the, um, the board is on the side of the house, but because the water had got up into the, um, the board that's on the side of the house, the brick was just falling off the side of the house, so they had to take that all down. And, um, you know, it was extremely difficult for him just moving in you know, coming to this area, and um, it, it, what was so awesome to hear from him is that he really felt like God had taken that, taken this this thing in his life, and, and um, really used it to change his own heart. And uh, what he related it to was the story of the Good Samaritan, and how um, you know there, there's a man who I don't I don't know if it's a Levite who walks by and he just you know, kind of like offers him, you know, just like shrugs, shrugs at him. And then the same thing happens with the, the rabbi going by. But um, he kind of related that to, you know, like, you know, oh, yeah, um, you know, God will take care of you, quote, quote a quick verse and walk by, kind of just like the, the Levite. And then the rabbi is kind of like, oh, you know, uh, I'll pray for you. And then you kind of just throw up a five-second prayer but then it's the Good Samaritan who actually comes in and, and loves and takes care of that man um, who has been beaten on the road and, you know, takes him to the inn and he cares for his needs. And he just, he found in his own life, he looked at it and he, he says, like, I, I've been that Levite, I've been that rabbi who has, you know, I've uh, quoted a person a verse real quick, you know, like, oh, all things work together for good, you know, and kind of not done it with heart. Or, you know, I'll pray for you and not really end up praying for that person. And he realized just the, the lack of love in his own heart and, and how God wanted to do something greater and make him into the good Samaritan who would reach out. And um, the part of the, his testimony is that really what's happened is that his other relatives have really, and his wife's relatives, have had a lot of needs. And so he's just found himself having to attend to the needs of other people. And, you know, it's just been beyond what he's capable of doing, you know, except by the grace of God. And... What he's finding is that he's given, and he's given when he doesn't have anything to give. And then God's uh, just been blessing him. He's already had about, he's estimated at about $50,000 worth of work done on his house for free. Um, as he's been just serving the Lord in this, uh, God's been rebuilding his house. And um, there, there keeps coming in kind of like new, uh, you know, resources that he needs to rebuild his house. And so just to hear that that one testimony was just a, an amazing thing, and, and we believe there's a you know a lot more testimonies like that where people were being, um, you know, re- their houses were being restored, and, and God was doing a greater work uh, in their hearts as He was you know freeing them from their selfishness. And uh, I think one of the things that stands also as a testimony too is that really people are saying um, that the church the church is really the uh, the group of people who are coming in and making a difference and helping people rebuild their lives. 
and um, you know it's, it's definitely don't want to you know slander the government in any way, but you just look at it and you see that um, you know the, you, most often it seems like the government most can mostly can only provide um, you know just kind of like the physical necessities, and they don't have kind of like the bandwidth to to be sending people all out over to you know deal with each home. I mean we had groups of you know, 10 people working on a home, and it would take two days just to, to clean, never mind to restore. And, you know, the government doesn't have the ability to do that to 200,000 homes or whatever has been destroyed down there. And, um, you know, they're able to give, like, FEMA trailers, which is a huge blessing that, you know, people are living in, um, in trailers that the government provides, but the, the, the people down there just need so much more. And, uh, you know, I, pretty much everyone testifies to that, you know, the the church has really been the one coming in and, and filling the gap and going out and, and reaching out to the people um, who really, you know, they need a place to live, they need their homes restored, and they, you know, they need um, spiritual nourishment, you know, from, from hearing the gospel. Um, but, uh, you, know, every, you know, just with that, I, I mean, the trip was really a blessing, eye-opening, and, um, you know, it's definitely worthwhile just a great investment um, to go down there. So, uh, thank you. So much in the Bible dedicated to the subject of God having a heart for people who are forgotten by the world. And what a privilege it is to, to just represent God in that capacity. As Greg said, not only... Uh, the people down there, but you even read in the press now that uh, basically the people who have been devastated have been forgotten. But God doesn't, God doesn't forget uh, victims who, uh, you know, are, are crying out. And it, what a, what a tremendous blessing just to 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 represent God in that capacity. We'd love to go down uh, again in the spring. Uh, at two weeks after Katrina, the the, uh, the media left. They went to the next story, uh, but these problems they they persist, and so uh, we want to be a part of uh, making sure that uh, those people are are blessed and ministered to. So we're going through the book of Matthew, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And the last lesson we had in Matthew, we were up on the. Uh, Mount of Transfiguration in the big uh, beginning of chapter 17, which is the story of Jesus uh, taking Peter, James, and John uh, to uh, up probably Mount Hermon, which is in northern Israel. And uh, right before their eyes, Jesus was transformed. According to chapter 17, <laughs> verse 2, his face shone like the sun. His, uh, his clothes were as lightning. And... Uh, for the first time, they were seeing Jesus in all his uh, glory. For the most of their life, they had followed him. They uh, thought he was just a man, and an extraordinary one, but just a man. And, and now uh, uh, they are finding out he is much, much more. Uh, here he was on the Mount of Transfiguration in the likeness he was before he uh, left the throne of heaven and came to earth. For a few moments, they were also able to see what Jesus uh, gave up. 
uh, when uh, he came to earth to save man from his sin. And they were also able to see uh, what he would be like in the future after he was raised from the dead and went to be uh, with the Father. Now, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, it's going back uh, a while, but uh, uh, it was no coincidence that this happened right after the events of, uh, at the end of chapter 16 uh, of Matthew. At the end of chapter 16 of Matthew, Jesus had brought his disciples to Caesarea Philippi in northern Israel. Many people uh, by this time had stopped following Jesus. Uh, They uh, had heard his teaching. He had multitudes uh, that had been surrounding him. They had heard his teaching and were astonished by his uh, teaching, the Bible says. They had seen his miracles and were amazed by them. Uh, They had witnessed his love, his his tenderness uh, and mercy, and it it had warmed their hearts. Uh, But they had walked away. They had walked away. Why? Well, we read uh, about that in John chapter 6, uh, when Jesus had told these multitudes right after he had fed uh, thousands of them uh, with bread, with just a few loaves and a couple of fish. Uh, he told them, because they were sort of persistently falling wherever he went, and finally said they were looking for food that they could put in their mouth, but he said, I am the bread of life, he said. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. And, and so they, they, they heard that, and it was at that point that they walked away. They walked away at that point. And why, you may ask? Well, because they realized that this man, Jesus, wanted much, much more from them. Uh, He wanted more from them than what they had been giving him. Up until then, all that they had really been giving him uh, was an audience. Uh, They they were present. Uh, They went to the Jesus show uh, where they were wowed uh, with his uh, miracles, uh, with his uh, teachings, uh, with his uh, healings and and, and this type of thing. Uh, Each time they left, uh, they were amazed uh, but uh, Jesus, now that they're finding, it, it, he wants their lives. Uh, he's saying, I am the bread of life. Feed off of me. And, and this really started uh, freaking people out. And so uh, he wanted them not to just show up for the Jesus show. Uh, he wanted them to hunger uh, after him, only after him, to thirst only after him. And, and no more hungering and thirsting after their own dreams. No more hungering and thirsting uh, after their own ideas of what they wanted to do with their life. No more their own timetable. No more hungering and thirsting after uh, their own desires. Jesus wanted to be their life. He, 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 the bread of their life where, the, where they fed only on him. Why? Because he wanted a relationship uh, with him. Uh, with them, he, and as he does with you and me, but uh, that was more than what they wanted. Uh, so it says in John chapter 6, uh, verse 66, it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And so Jesus in Matthew uh, 16, verse 13, uh, he is in northern Israel in the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples, Who do men say that I am? 
And when he asked that, I believe he was referring to all those men and women, uh, the thousands of men and women who had turned away from him and stopped following him. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? It says his disciples said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, before turning away from Jesus, before turning away from him, uh, they convinced themselves that he was just a man. Yeah, he was an extraordinary man, but he was just a man. Now, if you convince yourself that Jesus is just a man, it will be much easier for you to walk away from him. If you convince yourself it's just sort of a story that someone made up and uh, the Bible's not really true, it'll be very easy to walk away from him. So, some of the people walked away from him, concluded, oh, he was just um, a prophet. He's a man. Extraordinary to be sure, but just a man. So then in verse 15, Jesus turns to them and says, well, what do you think? You've told me what they think. What do you think? Who do you, th- who do you think that I am? And so uh, at that point, uh, Peter responds, and he responds in chapter 16, verse 16, and he says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And so by saying this, the Apostle uh, Peter uh, was doing what those thousands who had turned away were not willing to do. He was making Jesus his life. He was making Jesus his Savior. You don't go around and, and tell someone, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God, without also realizing, man, you're, you're giving this person your life. And, and so that's what uh, uh, Peter was doing. And so now it was no coincidence that right after uh, Peter makes this great confession that at the beginning of chapter 17, Jesus takes him to a high mountain and he shows Peter uh, who it was really who it was that he had just committed his life to, who it was who he gave his life to. And in verse 2 of chapter 17, again, it says, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. God will do the same thing in your life. When you say to God, okay, Lord, I'm willing to give you it all. Uh, Take it, Lord. I'm tired of just uh, uh, following at a distance. I'm tired of being just a spectator. Uh, I'm tired of having you just be a piece of my life. Here, take all of my life. God will show you his glory. And I'm not talking um, uh, on a mountaintop where you see uh, Jesus' face shining like the sun, his clothes like lightning. Uh, I'm talking about uh, that time when you realize for the first time in your life that Jesus is not just a picture on a stained glass window. He's real. He's alive. Not only is he alive, living, he's living inside of you. And there's joy and there is peace in the midst of life and all its turmoil. And there's something to live 
for. And better yet, there's something to uh, die for. And, and you can get to know him. And, and all of a sudden, the Bible turns from this uh, dead, heavy, uh, big black, black book uh, to something that's moving and rich and living and something that fills your uh, heart and your life when you read it. And so that is what's happening to Peter, James, and John in the beginning of chapter 17. Uh, they're like, wow, this is Jesus. I never knew. This is incredible. And God will show himself to you, too, when you give him your all. But as we continue, we read that the mountaintop experience uh, comes to an end. In Matthew 17, verse 9, uh, actually, of, of chapter 17, it says, They came down. They came down the mountain. And then picking up again in verse 14, uh, it says uh, again there in verse 14 where we read this morning, it says, And when they had come down uh, to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. And Luke says it was his only son. For he is an epileptic and suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but uh, they could not cure him. Now, the word epileptic there is actually better uh, translated lunatic. Uh, Literally, moonstruck. Now, that word moon, luna, lunatic. uh, Luna is the Latin or Spanish for for moon. And uh, it, it was thought at the time that the moon made people crazy. And so the man is saying, uh, my son, he's, he's a lunatic, and he just jumps into the fire. He, he jumps into the, uh, into the water. And, and, and in the, actually, in the Gospel of Mark, in the King James, it says that the boy has a spirit which tears at him, uh, which tears at him. And, and the man's also uh, crying out uh, in the midst of everything else. He's saying, and you're, by the way, your disciples couldn't cure him. Your disciples couldn't cure him. I took him uh, to them, and, and they couldn't uh, cure him. Now, also important, this uh, account here is in Mark. It's also in Luke and Matthew. Mark also adds that in the midst of all this, there was an argument going on, a sort of um, fighting in between a bunch of Jewish scribes who were experts in Jewish law and Jesus' disciples. They were uh, an argument that going on there. And so, now put yourself in the shoes of uh, Peter, James, and John. They are up on the mountain with Jesus. Jesus is changed, his face shining like the sun, his clothes like the lightning. And I'm sure they're probably, at least in their hearts, are worshiping him. Oh, Lord, you're wonderful. You're awesome. You're my king, Lord. You're my God, Lord. And and you talk about a mountaintop experience. This is it. I mean, Peter was so excited. If you remember, he said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let me make a little house for uh, you you, Elijah, and Moses. He never wanted to leave. I mean, this was a piece of heaven, literally, on earth. And so... 
think of imagine being them and, and walking away from that scene and, and into the scene in verses 14 through 21. You talk about uh, coming off a mountaintop. They come off the mountain, and there's the, a, a man who's weeping over his son. He's surrounded by Jesus' disciples who are arguing and fighting uh, with, one, uh, with a bunch of Jewish scribes. If there's anything in the world that I can't stand, it's people arguing about religion. I'd rather have someone come up to a chalkboard and listen to that all day than listen to people arguing about religion. But anyway, they're walking down this. This guy's suffering. This man's weeping. There's this argument going on. And then there's a multitude um, always looking for a fight, right? Uh, always looking for a fight. And they're looking, you know, seeing what's, uh, what's going on. And so you can imagine Peter, James, and John, you know, what is this, Jesus? Can we go back and see Moses? Please, can we go back up on that mountaintop? Jose, could you close those doors? People are getting real cold in here. I don't know how many times I have, uh, I have had a similar experience. Uh, a mountaintop experience with the Lord. And I, I will get up in the morning and, and open my Bible and have uh, just a rich time with, with God. And I'll, man, I'll just leave the house just glowing. But pretty soon you're on the highway to work and, and you know, there are police cars just going by you with uh, uh, their sirens. There's ambulances with, you know, ever had one of those ambulances with a foghorn right in back? And, you know, it's like the force of the horn just pushing you forward. And, 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 and you know, you were glowing five minutes ago. You're not anymore. And, 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 you know, people are shaking their fists at you and road rage type of deal. And, of course, here in Boston, the, the classic Boston thing, you'll be, you know, you're off a highway and you're, you see a crosswalk in front of you, right? And, and you're coming up to the crosswalk and there's a bunch of people, they enter it and they take like, for a split second, they look at you and then they don't. And then they just walk. And, and, and they're going right out in front of you. And you haven't put on your brakes. But they, they don't care. They're not looking at it. And, and they're just, just walking, not even looking at you, going straight. And you're like, you know. And, and, and then, then you're going through some other lane, and someone's in front of you going half the speed limit, you know. They're looking at a map. You know, where's Bunker Hill? We just don't, this doesn't look like, you know, where you know, uh, Paul Revere Road to me, and, 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 you know, they're crossing over to the other side of the road, and, and then you take a, a, a right to try to avoid them, and your car falls in the big dig or whatever. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's tough. You know, when you leave the mountaintop and, and you, uh, you go out uh, into the world and, 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 you know, you get to work and by the time you get to work, your hair's standing on your head. And, Lord, can I go back to the mountaintop? Can I go back to a place where there's no people, Lord, just you, Lord, you know? And that's how it is so often. And we need to ask ourselves, though, what would Jesus do? Would he go back to the mountaintop? Well, he didn't here. Uh, listen to how he reacts to coming down from uh, the mountaintop. Uh, he comes back. Uh, there's this man weeping, this child suffering. His disciples had fallen into some petty little argument uh, with some Jewish scribes. And what does he say? Verse 17, it says, Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation. Now, perverse means twisted. We think of it perverse when we think of a, a sexually immoral person, well, that 
is uh, true, but uh, it's much, much more. It's just the, the twisted, fallen nature of man. He says, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Now, when you read this, don't think that Jesus is saying this in anger. Don't think he's saying, how long do I have to put up with you? How long do I have to stick around? You know, that's not what's going on. The reason we read that and think like that, think Jesus is saying that, is because that's what we do. You know, we, we go out onto the highway or whatever, and the road rage, people shaking their fists, and it's like, Lord, how long do I have to put up with this? I just want to go to Montana, you know, and live with the squirrels and the chipmunks, you know. I, I don't have to put up with this anymore. But that's, that's not how Jesus uh, is, is talking here. Uh, this is a, sort of like um, a groan uh, that... Uh, that Jesus is making here. And it's, it's similar to uh, later on in Matthew where he's standing over Jerusalem and he's saying with a, dr- a groan deep from within him, he's saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then another time where Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, it says that he weeps. He was weeping. And as he was weeping, he spoke to the city saying, If you, even you, Jerusalem, had known the things that would give you peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The day will now come when upon you when your enemies will level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of God's visitation. And so it's that, it's that groaning uh, where Jesus says here in verse 17, how long shall I be with you? How long uh, shall I bear with you? You. you know, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 37, which is a psalm by David. Now, David, as much as anybody, struggled tremendously with coming down from the mountaintop and into the valley where just all the, the you know, the, the people were having to deal with the people. And, and you read through the Psalms of David, and uh, often you'll read things like, you know, there's no one righteous, Lord, not even one. Lord, I'm surrounded by bloodthirsty men. Strong bulls surround me. I, I lie among the sons of men who, set, or who are set on fire and, and whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are like sharp swords. And, and so he really struggled, like we do. 
when we're in the valley and we've come off the mountaintop. And, and, and David's reaction was a lot like our reaction sometimes. And I'm reading now from various psalms. Break their teeth, O God. Tear out their fangs. Let them be like a snail which melts away, like a stillborn sh- child. You know, things like, may awful diseases fall upon them and may their kids be sold into slavery. I mean, you know, he really got into it. I mean, he, you know, uh, we think we're bad. But, you know, David, man, he just let it out. But then he calms down, and the Lord gets his attention, and, 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 and David, he puts on the mind of Christ, and, and he writes a psalm like uh, uh, Psalm 37, which says, do not fret because of evildoers. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed off his faithfulness. See, that's what we're supposed to do when we're, we leave the mountaintop. See, now that we, don't, we can't by sight see Jesus with his face shining like the sun and his clothes shining like lightning, we have to feed off his faithfulness, just feed off the faithfulness of, of God. And it goes on in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. This is, this is what we're supposed to do in the valley. Delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. So in, in the midst of all the petty bickering and the suffering and, the, we, uh, and the, the weeping, God says, you feed off the faithfulness of God, and he will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. And let me tell you, we need to learn that. Because guess what? 95% of the Christian life is in the valley. Not on the mountaintop. It's in the valley. And like Jesus, who the Bible says did not consider it a quality with God, something to be grasped, he left the mountain and he came to earth and took the appearance of the man. We need to follow him right into the valley and, and stay with him. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to him, and he will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause, like the noonday sun. I took a bunch of guides to the Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference in Maryland last May. And on the last night, there was a worship session that almost blew the top off the building. I mean, it was just amazing. I, 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 I had never experienced this kind of worship. I, and, 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 you know, we have great worship every Sunday here. And, uh, and I so much appreciate our, our, our worship team uh, because it's sort of carrying forth what um, uh, the Calvary Chapel movement started in the 70s. But uh, there was a thousand guys in this building, a thousand men. And they were singing at the top of their lungs. Now, guys, you know, they can be pretty wimpy when they're singing, right? I mean, usually guys, you know, they're, they're sort of looking around, you know. Our God is an awesome God, you know. Anyone listening to me? Any women around hearing my voice? He prays from heaven above, you know. But, you know, get the women out, and, and, and all of a sudden it turns into, you know, like that, uh, 
that that poster with that guy sitting in front of a speaker and his hair is and and it, it's just it was just amazing and it was so amazing it just blew away the worship leader after it finished remember they they, they sang this song in christ alone which is really a hymn and, and the guy just after it ended he did the whole thing again it's like a four stanza hymn and 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 after he was like what's up with you God? what is going on here and so it was so awesome uh, uh, that I, I thought all of us were just going to sort of fly away at the end, you know. And, and it wasn't le- easy leaving that mountaintop. It really wasn't. Let me tell you. But the good news is that we can look forward to returning to the mountaintop when we go to be with the Lord. Never, ever get so caught up in the world that you lose your vision of heaven. And if you don't have a vision of heaven, learn it. It's in the Bible. Revelation chapter 5, we are given that vision. The apostle John says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels and living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then all of them uh, bowed down. 10,000 times 10,000. You know, by math, by my math, how many million is that? Who, someone, real quick. 100 million, amazing. Uh, Gabor back there. 100 million. And, and you think, I thought 1,000 people singing to the Lord was awesome. Can you imagine being in the presence of a hundred million people praising God? Don't let the world, don't get so preoccupied with the world that you lose your vision of heaven. So anyway, what does Jesus do once he's in the valley? Does he run back up into the mountain when he sees all the chaos? No. Uh, Verse 18. It says, And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. So there's a lot of spiritual warfare, we are told, in the valley. It's one of the things that makes the valley an unpleasant place to be. A lot of spiritual warfare there. And so Jesus goes right at it uh, there. And then um, it continues here in verse 19. It says uh, that the disciples, what they did, they sort of pulled Jesus aside and said, Hey, Jesus, why couldn't we do that? Why couldn't we cure that boy? And then it says uh, in verse 20, one of the most quoted verses in the entire Bible, Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, If you have a faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, this should be one of the most often quoted verses in the Bible. And the reason is, life in the valley is filled with impossibility. It's filled with it. I mean, it's like trees, trees of impossibility planted 
a harvest of trees in the valley, and, and, and life is just spent navigating uh, those things. And, and, and you may be sitting here this morning, and you are facing an impossibility in your life, a situation that is far beyond your ability to cope with. You may be in a relationship that is beyond repair. You may have a situation in your homes with with your kids, a rebellious kid or whatever, beyond your ability to cope with. You may have an illness in, in your family that's like a mountain before you, incurable, unmovable. You may have an addiction that you've spent 10 years trying to conquer, and it's only conquered you. You might as well be battling 100,000 soldiers because it's beaten you every time. You may have a crisis that looks so ugly, so awful, so insurmountable, you are thinking the best thing to do is just to take your life. Just, I don't want to live anymore. That is what God This is what God wants you to learn this morning. God is bigger than your problem. And the solution to it, listen, this is very careful. This is what this verse is teaching. has very little to do with you, but everything to do with God. Jesus is saying here, what does he say? He says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move, and it will move. The solution to your this impossible, this mountain in front of you, does not depend upon how big your faith is. Now, I I, I, te- I talk with people all the time, and 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 they're they're just about to break, they're just about uh, to to go over the edge, and they're they're saying, I just need more faith, but I I don't have more faith. But Jesus is saying here, that's not the issue. The issue is not how big your faith is. The issue is how big your God is. Now, we discussed this a few weeks ago. How big is a mustard seed? Well, uh, if you go up to a a mustard tree, I don't think you'll be finding any around here, but if you go over to Israel and you go up to a mustard tree, uh, you pick off uh, these little kernels. And a lot of people mistake these kernels for the seeds. But in order to get to the seeds, you have to break open the kernel, and out of the kernel comes thousands of little yellow specks. That, one of those little specks, that is a mustard seed. And so what Jesus is saying here, if if all it takes is one of those little specks of faith to move a mountain, you can imagine what it takes for God to deal with that hill that you're dealing with. You already have it. God has given you faith at the time of salvation. Second Peter chapter 1 says the very beginning of a, a, of a Christian life is faith implanted in, into your eye. You have it. You have, and all it takes is a, a speck as small uh, as a, a, a mustard seed. So often when we get this uh, impossible uh, situation in front of us, we get this crazy idea that somehow we have to, we have to just cook up enough faith. You, you know, if we clench our, our, our fists hard enough and grit our teeth and, and shake maybe and turn all red, you know, ooh, just faith, come on in me. That's not what happens. 
And, you know, it's not like we cook up faith like we put, you know, uh, cook up a milkshake in a, in a blender or something. That's not how it works. God has given you faith, and all it takes is faith as small as a mustard seed. And, and really what, it's, what it is all about is just continuing to move on. Look what it says in verse 21. It says, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, some people get confused with that verse. Uh, and all it really means is this one only comes out by persevering. In other words, by continuing to walk on. That's... that's that's what it is. And, and God has given you that speck of faith that you need to continue walking on. I'll never believe someone if they come to me and they said they backslid or whatever. Well, because I just sort of lost faith. Not true. God deposited faith in your heart as a guarantee of what to expect in heaven uh, from him. And, and that was what the Bible says. And so he's given us the faith. And it's just a wonderful thing about walking with the Lord for, for, for a number of years. And it's just that over time, just, you get to so many testimonies of people and, and exercising that faith and watching mountains just move out of the way in their life. And so what, what Jesus says here is it's the word of God. It's true. Um, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed. And so... The issue is not how big our faith is. The issue is how big our God is. Let's go to verse 22. It says, Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And it says they were exceedingly sorrowful. Now, some people ask why it was in verses 14 through 16 these uh, disciples could not heal this demon-possessed boy. Remember uh, when the father took his son, it says the the disciples in verse 16, it says, I took uh, my child to your disciples, but they could not uh, cure him. And why was it? Why was it that uh, the disciples couldn't cure him. Very good question, uh, because they had cured many demon-possessed people. Some of you may remember how Jesus sent off his disciples and said, I give you power to preach the gospel, heal the sick, and uh, cast out demons. And it says when they came back, they were rejoicing. And they said, wow, even the devil submit to us. And, and what did Jesus say? He said, don't rejoice because the devil submitted to you, rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In other words, those devils, demons submitting, had nothing to do with them. It was about God who was doing it through them. And so many believe here that in what happened and the reason that they couldn't uh, cast out this demon uh, the, the, the sort of the clue is in verse 19 where it says the disciples came to Jesus privately and says, why couldn't we cast them out? Well, what's with this we? I mean, I've never cast out a devil and, and, and I, I have laid my hands on, on people and, 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 and some of them have been healed, but I, one thing I'm not going to do is, wow, I healed that person. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, it, it's not me. It's, it wasn't them who had cast out the demons, and it wasn't them 
really, if that demon was going to leave that boy, it, it wasn't going to be them uh, doing it. And so it, it's interesting. Here in verses 22 and 23, Jesus says the same thing he had said at the end of chapter 16. He says, uh, by the way, I'm going to be betrayed in the hands of men. They will kill him and the third day, uh, they will kill me and the third day I will be raised up and some people think that what, when they heard that at the end of chapter 16, when the disciples first heard that Jesus was going to be killed soon, that their faith began to falter at that point. Because up, to, up until chapter 16, the disciples' idea of following Jesus was, wow, this Jesus, he is uh, the Messiah, and he, that means that he is going to be he is going to be crowned king of Israel, and guess who is going to be in his cabinet? We are. And so they had that faith, you know, when they knew they had this, you know, they had this object in their mind, this vision, and wow, it's easy to have faith when that's what you're going for. But as soon as they were told, you know, Jesus was going to die, he was going to leave them. And not only that, he was going to be beaten and mocked and, and handed over to the Gentiles and, and crucified. Uh, their faith began uh, to falter. That was a, a very, very uh, different, uh, different idea than they had of what their end was going to be. See, for many people... It's easy to have a faith, to have faith in God, to believe in the Bible, to believe in his word, to believe that Jesus was the son of God and that he has a plan for your life. It's easy to do that when things are going well, when things are going all as you desire, when the, th- the, the dreams that you would have for your life, you know, they seem to be sort of falling into place. But as soon as things start to go awry, They start going in a direction that they didn't want or that you didn't want. And and then you start thinking, well, you know, maybe God isn't as trustworthy as I thought. Maybe, you know, maybe these promises are just some man-made thing. Maybe uh, maybe I'm losing out on all this stuff that I've I've sort of given up on and this security blanket I used to uh, that I used to grab onto. Maybe I should maybe I should get that and at least put one hand on that security blanket again. And so they don't stop following God, but they start taking one eye off of the Lord. And, and, and what happens is they open up a few bank accounts on, on the side just in, case, just in case their bank account with God uh, bounces. You know, when we first came to the Lord and we gave our life to Him, we opened up a big old bank account, you know, Jesus. Big old account. Jesus account and and we closed down the other accounts took some of us it took a couple years some of us it was overnight the lust account the love of the praise of men account the love of money account the love of drugs and alcohol account the uh, the love of security account name it you know an idol we don't think ourselves as idol worship anything can be an idol If you're single, getting married can be an idol to you. 
It's, it's commonly an, an, an idol. Love of TV account, love of pleasure account, and you know, you close them all down. After you realize when you come to the Lord that, that God says in his word that he will meet all our needs through his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Uh, but oftentimes what happens is that a few years go by and wow, things, things are not turning out the way we wanted. And in fact, some things seem like God has completely taken them out of the way. And our source of happiness that we thought was going to be our source of happiness has been completely removed. And so what do we do? Well, we just, you know, open up a few, just a couple of bank accounts on the side just in case this one doesn't work out. And, and what happens? Our faith in God is undermined. And many believe that's what happened here with these, uh, th- with these disciples. As soon as they found out, they were not going to be cabinets in any Jerusalem palace. They were not going to be in the ministers or in the cabinet members of any Jerusalem palace. <laughs> Jesus was going to die, and that probably meant what? They were going to die. And so they, they went, and, 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 and their, they started, their eyes started going off the Lord, and what happened? Their ministry started to falter. It happens to a lot of pastors. Their churches start growing enormously and, and things like that, and, and all of a sudden they take their eyes off the Lord, and, and soon the, the ministry starts to grow cold from within because what happened? The pastors got their eyes off off the Lord and, and, and sort of on people. And so um, then we go on to, to verse 24, uh, just concluding here. It says, really interesting story here. It says, when they came to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Wow, you know, where's this coming from? I mean, all of a sudden you're talking about, you know, Jesus going to, to, to his death and, and resurrection, and, and all of a sudden he's talking about catching a fish with a, uh, the temple tax in it. Well, what this is is a confirmation of verse 20. It's a confirmation uh, for Peter that nothing is impossible for those who have or are willing to exercise that mustard seed of faith. And, you know, it's interesting, just growing up on the water, I spent every summer my whole life, except for one, in the Cape. And you do find weird stuff in fish, like foreign objects. And they will go after coins. And what's, what's interesting, I don't want to minimize this miracle at all, but uh, this isn't as fanciful as many people think it is. And you ask any fisherman, you'll find things in fish. I mean, it, it's not like uh, a mosquito is coming up uh, to Peter with this coin. I mean, this is something that, that fishermen were, were used to. The miracle was 
The miracle was not that there was a coin in the fish or even that Peter pulled up uh, a fish with a coin in it. The miracle was the exact fish that Peter said, that Jesus said was going to have the coin, had it. And what this is, is it's just a wonderful confirmation. People, God's in control of everything. And, And, you know... It's interesting that people question whether this really happened. The people who don't believe in the Word of God, oh, they, they, they say this, this story here, oh, they, they just, this is some fable, some fairy tale that happened. Well, they're not even reading it in its context. Jesus had just said, nothing is, is impossible if you have faith as a mustard seed. And so here he is confirming it. And, and, and really, as I was thinking about this verse, this is really no different than any prayer request that comes true. God is in control, and he moves circumstances in such a providential, uh, perfect way that the prayer request comes true. And so God had created this fish. He had grown up this fish to the exact size that he could swallow um, a coin. He brought the coin right to the place where Peter's uh, bait would be there and, 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 and led the fish to take that bait. And then, you know, had Peter reel it in. And so that's, that's the way God deals with every single prayer request that you put before him. Uh, there's, it, there's a natural component to it. And by that I mean fish do things like they eat up coins. They go after, a lot of fish go after the silvery, flashy stuff. So there's a natural uh, aspect to it. But, but the difference with, with our relationship with God, it's a supernatural relationship. So that supernatural element where God just guides the fish to the coin and then to Peter. And so nothing is impossible uh, for those who exercise that mustard seed of faith. Well, praise God. Let's, uh, let's conclude now in prayer and, and ask the Lord to, uh, to take our eyes off of, uh, off of the surroundings, our surroundings in the valley and uh, put our eyes on him and, and, and that we would remember it's not about how big our faith is. It's about how big uh, our God is. Lord, we, you are a big God. You, you are big, Lord. You, you created the expanses of all the heavens, Lord, and, and, and you uh, created this world and you knit every single one of our bodies into their present form, Lord, and uh, even uh, our young uh, babies. Some of them are in the womb right now, Lord. You're knitting them into, uh, into, uh, into form, into, the, into uh, a human being, Lord. And God, you are in control. You're in control, Lord God, and you're worthy uh, to be trusted, Father. And, and we thank you for your word, especially, Lord, where it says that we can come to the throne of grace with confidence. Jesus Christ, having died for us, having removed that wall of separation where we can come to you, Lord, and come to you with confidence. And your word says that we can receive grace and mercy in our time of need. And Lord, we need grace and mercy just to keep our eyes off uh, all the chaos in the valley and and on you, Lord. I just pray uh, for this group of believers, Lord, uh, for that impossible a mountain in front of some people this morning. Lord, I know that there's major, major issues with physical uh, 
sickness, Lord, uh, of people who are sitting in this room. Lord, we just pray, Father. We, we just collectively take our mustard seed and ask you for, for that you would bring healing, God, to those situations, Lord. And we uh, pray about those relationships, Lord, which from the human perspective, uh, it's just would people would just give up on them, Lord. And we put those before you and ask, Lord, that you... You, you, God, you who created the heavens and earth, that you would sort out the relationship. Lord, we just pray for uh, that financial thing or, or that whatever that thing, that depression that is eating away at, at someone's soul, Lord God, that you'd, you'd move, Lord. We, we put that before you. And, and Lord, we just, uh, we just thank you, Lord God, that in the valley our righteousness can uh, shine like the dawn the justice of our cause like the noonday sun. Only, Lord, give us the grace and mercy to be those people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. If you park downstairs, we have tokens in the back. If anyone needs prayer, please come up.